Well, good morning, church. Good morning. Uh, my name is Dustin, and I get the privilege of serving as the pastor here. Um, I'm thankful for that. I'm humbled. I love it, um, especially on uh, today. You know, uh, I guess Liam kind of kind of took it. It is a business as usual in some ways, but also it's a good thing to celebrate. We're here to celebrate uh, that because of uh, Jesus and what he accomplished in resurrecting from the dead. Uh, our sin and death has been defeated, and although we may have trouble on earth, we know our eternal end if you put faith in Christ. Amen, church? And we're thankful for that, and that's why we sing about it. And so, uh, yeah, we're thankful for you guys. Uh, if you have your Bibles, before we get jumping in too much, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, we love our Bibles here. I will say, uh, if you are new here, when you come to church here, uh, we are passionate on Sunday mornings about expositional preaching. And you say, Dustin, what is that? Uh, that's where we let the text, the Bible, dictate what we preach. And so there's a couple different ways uh, to preach, and, and different churches do it different ways. But uh, we are passionate about starting with the Bible and then our, our, what we explain and what we talk about being driven by the Bible rather than Dustin having a couple thoughts on the resurrection, okay? Uh, we need what God has divinely put in his word to drive what we think about the resurrection. Um, unfortunately, I am sinful just like you are. I need Christ just as much. Uh, I always joke with people, especially people that didn't grow up in church and say, because I'm a pastor, I don't go in a closet and cross my legs and hum for hours a day, you know, and hope that God gives me new revelation. That's not what I do. I spend time studying God's word, the same revelation that he's given to you about himself. Um, and then I get the privilege of getting to preach on Sunday morning. So I love it. And that's what we do. And that's what we do every Sunday. So uh, we'll be in 1 Corinthians 15. You say, Dustin, why did you pick that passage? I'll say, uh, if you're around every week, and if this is your first time, I hope you'll join us next week. Uh, we're going to start a series through the book of Ephesians. We'll go through it for about, uh, probably, I think it's like 25, 24 weeks. We'll be in it a long time. But uh, you say, well, why 1 Corinthians 15? Well, I really thought, where's the text that talks about the resurrection? Because today's Easter. And so Paul talks about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, if you're wondering what it talks about. And so we're going to read it, and uh, we're going to have two reasons why we should believe the resurrection, okay? And then we're going to have two impacts or, or two cause and effects that the resurrection has on our life personally. And so we'll look at why do we believe this? Is this just a myth type thing? And then the second thing will be if the resurrection is true, what is the consequence for my life? And what does that mean for me then? And so I'll read the text this morning, starting in 1 Corinthians 15. We'll read 1 through 11. That's what we'll be looking at. And then from those verses, we'll pull those few things out and we'll hear from God through his word this morning. So here we go. Uh, if you're not overly familiar with the Bible, let me give you a quick uh, sum up, okay? Because we'll be all through it this morning. Uh, you have the Old Testament, which would be Genesis through Malachi, and that's before Jesus came. Much of that was the story pointing to Christ. And what we know, if you were here last week, is that Jesus coming wasn't a rescue plan. Jesus wasn't like, man, people got so bad that he had to send Jesus. Because if that was the case, then there would have been no prophecies for Jesus to come. If there were prophecies, we know that it had to be God's plan. And so uh, those books point towards Christ. And then you have what we call the New Testament, which came after Jesus' life a couple thousand years ago. And one guy that wrote a lot of the New Testament, his name is Paul, and he was saved on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, which is just the story of 
some of the first Christians that ever lived that encountered Christ. And so this guy named Paul became a missionary. He traveled around, planted churches, and then after he would start the church, okay, say one of you guys decided you wanted to go uh, somewhere that needed a church, you started the church, and then things started going on, you would write letters back to them to help explain what they need to do and what they need to believe, okay? And so this is Paul writing a letter back to the church in the city called Corinth. And so when he writes this, we know that he's writing this in response to something. And he's writing this, what we're about to read, in response to people not believing that Jesus really resurrected. They thought it might have just been a theory or an idea. And Paul pins him down and says, this is why we believe the resurrection and this is what it means for your life. Fair enough? Good enough intro? Y'all ready to read it? You feel like Bible scholars now? <laughs> you do that in 10 minutes. We've got a ways to go, okay? Here we go. Chapter 15, verse 1. Paul says, now I would remind you. He's saying remind because we're in chapter 15. We skipped 14 chapters, okay? So I don't like to do this. So I like to preach through books of the Bible. So I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So he's telling them to come back to what he had already preached. Well, what had he already preached? He had already preached what he tells us in this book earlier is Christ crucified, that nobody in here, not one, is good enough for us to climb the ladder to heaven, to work our way there. But rather the story of Christianity is that God himself, wrapped in flesh, came down to earth, lived a perfect, sinless life, and died the death that every one of us deserves to die on the cross. And he did it for us because our sacrifice of our life would not be clean and pure like Jesus's was. And so he goes to the cross for us, and he says, if you believe in that and that he rose again on the third day, you will be saved. So he's just reminding them of what he had already preached to them, which is that gospel that I just tried to sum up and explain. This is where it gets good, verse 3. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance. What does Paul mean by first importance? What he means is that the gospel is the most important. You know, we say this a lot in our church, but we can't get the gospel wrong. The good news of what Jesus did. Listen, people will have different beliefs about secondary and tertiary things in church. But the one thing we can't get wrong is the gospel because Paul says in Romans 1.16 that it is the power of God for salvation. So if we miss the gospel, we can miss people's eternities. If you preach enough heresy that you miss the gospel, the truth of what Christ did, then you can actually lead people not to Christ and not to heaven, and you can damn them by not teaching the true gospel. Verse 3, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. This is what he received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the what? Scriptures. Scriptures. That's going to be one of our points in a minute. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the? It's important. Y'all, Paul's not testifying to some random guy that just happened to randomly be born in the perfect town at the perfect time with all the perfect people around. All of Jesus' life pretty much was prophesied about in the Old Testament before Jesus even came. And it was according to the scriptures. Verse 5. And that he appeared to Cephas, which if you know much of Scripture, you know that Cephas wasn't just another random guy. Cephas is Peter. Okay, so if that helps you connect who Cephas was. Then to the twelve, talking about the twelve apostles. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, 
most of whom are still alive while Paul is writing. They're not alive anymore, you guys. Though some have fallen asleep. If you were here a couple weeks ago, we talked about why does Paul say people fell asleep? What does he mean? He means people that died. But if we're believers, we know that our death on earth is not our ultimate place we're going, right? That we are once going to resurrect because we resurrect because Christ resurrected. So we have life because Christ gave us life and we will resurrect too one day and get to spend eternity with Jesus. So really, our bodies here are kind of just falling asleep, which is probably a good way to put it. And it would help our culture have a little better grip on what life and death is. Verse 7, we're almost done. Then he appeared to James, which was Jesus' half-brother, then to all the apostles, and then last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. Who's me in this text, you guys? Paul, yeah. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But what does Paul write later tell us in Ephesians? He says, you really don't have a neutral state. We're either living for Christ or we're living against Christ. Because even if we're doing good things, if we're not doing them for Jesus, but we're being a good person and doing good things, we're still doing them so that people will look to us and give us glory and worship us, right? That's a pretty good guy. If we do good things so that people would say, Dustin's a pretty good guy, then I've caused your eyes to come off of Christ and to put your eyes on me for me being a good guy. Y'all follow me here? It's a glory issue. We're trying to get people's eyes on Christ. Verse 10, this is where it gets good. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. I won't have time to get into this in a minute, so let me pause and say what he means there. He means that God didn't have grace towards you and I, saying that he wanted to give us something we couldn't deserve, which is grace. He wanted to give us salvation that you and I couldn't earn. And he didn't just think about that and then not do anything about it, right? God's thought about you and I was not in vain. What does vain mean? It means done without purpose, done without meaning. What did God do because he wanted to show us grace? He sent Christ down, and he lived a perfect and sinless life that we couldn't and bore the penalty and wrath that we deserved for us. And that's God's grace in Christ to us. And Paul says that wasn't in vain because God did something about it. He sent Jesus to earth for us. The end of verse 10, it says, On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Sounds like Paul's kind of conceited a little bit, doesn't it? He's like, all those guys thought they worked hard, but they didn't work hard. I worked hard. But guess what Paul says next? He's not conceited. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. If you come often, we sing a song called, Yet Not I, But Christ in Me. And that's what the song's talking about. At the end of the day, none of us have anything to boast about. We boast in what Christ has done for us. Verse 11, last one. Whether then it was, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and you believed. He's saying the resurrection we preached to you and you believed it. And that's what was of, remember, first importance that he sent to them. So let's pray together if y'all are good with that. Um, and then we'll unpack what this is saying. Father, we love you. God, I'm thankful for your word. God, I'm thankful this morning especially uh, for the cross and resurrection. Lord, that we don't have to, God, work our way to you as we would be hopeless. 
God, as we sing that our shame was left in the grave, our shame would still be hung over our head if it wasn't for what you accomplished for us. And so, God, would you help as we talk about your cross and resurrection, would you help our eyes be on you? God, would you help it have a lasting effect in our life and our heart? And God, would you rearrange our priorities? God, would you grow our affections and love for you because of your word and what we learn from it? Lord, we love you. I thank you for this time together. And God, thank you for your word. And we love you and we pray these things in Christ's name. Everybody says, amen. amen. Quick point. Sorry, I normally don't use my computer. I still can't find my iPad. So um, we'll keep searching. I'm going to find it. But uh, when Paul says of first importance, um, he, he, he's trying to get across the idea that there is something the most important. Okay? It got me thinking. And just to kind of get you thinking about the resurrection and the cross and why that might be of first importance. It got me thinking about sports, and so uh, if you're familiar with me, you're probably used to sports analogies. I apologize, but some of you like them, and if you don't, catch back up after, okay? Um, But uh, for a while, I got to coach travel baseball, and I coached some kids who were really good, and um, I learned some things about sports. In sports, you can often think that you're winning at a lot of things, but really not win. Y'all see what I'm saying? Like, you can win a lot of the good things, but really not get the big W win. You see what I'm saying? And so uh, we were once playing a team. They were out of Augusta. We were out of Statesboro. They were called the Augusta Nationals. I'll never forget. And we had a rivalry with them. And uh, when we were 11, they beat us three times by less than three runs. And then at 12, we, we were going to get revenge. We were going to beat them. We don't like to lose, right? We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you have to like to lose. I don't like to lose, okay? Um, so we, we go to play them, and we, we won every part of the game, it seemed, all the way to the sixth inning. We uh, probably had about a hit an inning, six or seven hits. We had people on base every inning. Uh, our pitcher was looking really sharp. I mean, they had like no base runners. But we got to the sixth inning, and we were only winning one to zero. And so it felt like we had this big lead. Our kids were kind of getting, uh, you know, complacent. They kind of had the game won, but the score only showed one nothing. Because in baseball, are you just trying to win errors and hits and more people on base, or are you trying to do what than the other team? We're trying to score more runs, yeah. So we come to the bottom of the sixth inning, and uh, we walk a guy. The guy hadn't walked a kid all year, he wait, or, or all game. He waited till the, the sixth inning to walk a guy. The next guy comes up, first pitch fastball, dinger over center field fence, game over, we lose, okay? Sad, I know, but here's my point, okay? It's because we thought we had won things that were not of first importance, okay? Let me give you some practical advice. I thought about this this week. I probably think I big W win with my wife a lot, but it's because I haven't figured out what was of first importance to her. Yeah? Like, I think to her it's important that I might get out of the house for a few hours and give her some time to go play golf, but that's not of first importance to her. You know what I mean? Yeah? It's of first importance that I might serve her, clean the house, etc. Okay? Um, We have to label in our life things of first importance. What is the most important? Babe, What's the most important thing to you that I can do? You see what I'm saying here? Like, how can I big W win? Not how can I think I'm winning, but maybe not be winning. But how can I do that? And so I say all this this morning about first importance because that's what Paul says to them. He says, I delivered to you of first importance. And what was of first importance that he went through? The cross and the resurrection. Yeah, those two were of first importance to him. And so what I want to do is I want to go through two reasons why Paul says we should believe the gospel of first importance, that Christ died and rose again. 
two reasons we should believe it and then two things it has in our life and then we're going to sing a song and then we're going to go enjoy celebrating the rest of the day what Christ did. Sound good? Yeah? I guess that's rhetorical. If you don't like it, you got about 20 minutes left, okay? So it'll be good. Here we go. So number one, why do we believe? Number one, we believe because of the scriptures. We believe not in vain, you guys. This is not a random thing that we believe. We believe because it's a true historical event. It really happened. Let me give you a quick example. This past week, we had a scavenger hunt with uh, some of our uh, college students. And so when we were doing the uh, scavenger hunt, um, I had to get ready to put the eggs out. And a couple of the kids were, or, or one of the guys primarily was walking around with me putting the eggs out. And he knew who all of the buildings on campus were named after. So I'm getting like the tour of tours of UGA's campus. And he's like, yeah, this guy died in 1874, but he did this. He left this money. And this is why he was famous. This is why they named the building after him. And so we're sitting over there talking. And I get to ask him, I'm like, well, why do you think that guy really lived? Like, could you think that like maybe somebody decided that, that we needed a good legacy that somebody did and so we drew up this guy's name, and we gave him a legacy that maybe he didn't leave or not, but we made it sound good. And then we put his name on a building so that we could have a good reason to tell people. And my point is this. One of the guys next to him brought up this question. Well, then why do we believe anything from history? Anybody in here ever see George Washington? No. Do you believe he was the first president of the United States? Do you believe anything you don't see? Do you believe that you love your spouse? Have you ever seen love? Just a couple questions, right? Think about this. Why do we believe any of this? Because it's passed down. There's something that foretells it happening that doesn't make this random news, okay? And I'll get into this in a second, but there are several things, okay? If we conservatively say this, there's 300 specific prophecies from the Old Testament that Jesus fulfills in the New Testament that make him not a random person. And what this drives us to ultimately is that we can't look at Jesus and just let it just say, I'm just going to be neutral towards him. This is why some of the people you talk to get more frustrated when you bring up the name Jesus than anything. It's because you can't think about somebody dying the death that you should deserve to die and then resurrecting from the grave, proving that he's God and showing that God would accept the sacrifice that he made and think of it as a neutral thing. Right? We're, not, we're not just coming and celebrating you guys because it's a good day to come and drink coffee and take pictures. There's a serious historical event that we need to come to a crossroads with. And if it's true, we need to humbly submit ourselves to it. And if it's not, we need to label Jesus a lunatic or a liar or something and say that it's not true. Is that fair? Yeah? That we need to decide what the impact is on our life. That's what Paul was trying to get them to do. Paul made them come to the conclusion that if Jesus did die and resurrect, they had to listen to his teachings. And if he did it, then they didn't need to. And that was close enough, and that was fair. So what I want to do is I just want to hit three quick, okay? Three Old Testament prophecies that maybe you heard of the stories of Christ when he got to ready to go to the cross and then resurrect. Three prophecies that pointed to what he did. The first one... It's going to come from Psalm 22, and I'm just going to put it on the screen so you can read them. Now, let me remind you, the Old Testament teachings, the, the part of the Bible that comes before Christ, is found in numerous places over and over and dated by every scholar, even secular scholars, to be dated before Christ. 
The most recent one was, was, I believe it was in the 1950s. There was a, a city in Qumran, you may have heard of it, okay? And they went in a cave in Qumran where this group of people that they know lived there at least 300 years before Jesus came on the scene had all of the books of the Bible we have in our Old Testament. So when we read from Psalm in a second, when we read from Isaiah, and when we read from Zechariah, there's absolutely no doubt that these writings came before Christ was born, okay? So the first one is Psalm 22. You'll put that one up there, the very first one. This is Psalm 22, 14 through 16. There's a couple specific phrases I'll, I'll bring to your attention. It says, I am poured out like water, and all of my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. This is David talking, but it's David talking about a person who would come and what would happen to that person. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. He says, for dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. And what does he say will happen to that person? They have pierced my hands and feet. What did they, where did they put the nails for Jesus, you guys? In his, his hands and his feet. This is what Luke says about it right after that. If you'll go to that scripture. Remember now, this is in the New Testament after Jesus had come on the scene. And let me remind you, in a second I'm going to talk about how all of the apostles died. Jesus reappeared to them. This wasn't a good idea that they could put Christian across their forehead and it gave them special, uh, special things from the king. You know what I mean? The, Christian, the, the, the kings at that time were like, yeah, you should say you're a Christ follower because then I'll give you a break on your taxes. <laughs> no, it was the opposite. You claimed yourself Christ follower and you thought they might come in your house that evening and kill you. And that did happen to many of them. But they weren't believing in vain because they had seen the risen Christ. And they believed for a reason. Luke 14, 39, it says, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. But what did Jesus first tell him to look at? See my hands and feet. He's quoting... Psalm 22 there, which they call is the Psalm of the Cross. And you see there that there's an Old Testament and a New Testament talking about what Christ would do in the midst of the two. The next one, I want to go to another one, is uh, Zechariah. And I believe it's Zechariah 9.9. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Listen, of all the prophets in the Old Testament, none of them claimed to have salvation. They, they claimed to have a, have a word from God, but they didn't claim that they were the way that people could be saved. Jeremiah, Isaiah, Malachi, all of them, uh, Ezekiel, all the prophets, none of them said, I'm the Savior of the world that's going to die for sins. This was a specific person that was to come. Righteous and having salvation is he. That he there is a singular male there's no doubt about what was coming. But how does it say this person's going to ride in? Humble and mounted on a what? Now, if that's not random and a random prophecy to fulfill, I don't know what it is, okay? Now, here's why it's random. It was fairly normal for them a few hundred years later when the Romans were in charge for them to ride people in on donkeys. At Zechariah's time, donkeys really had nothing to do, okay? 
where Zachariah was in that time, donkeys were really not important at all. So they're probably thinking this guy's going to ride in on a donkey. Zachariah, you're weird. Yeah, that's what they're thinking. But he writes it. And guess why what Zechariah writes ends up in our Bible? Because he's a prophet foretelling of something. And what he's foretelling of becomes true. And a prophet's not a prophet unless what they say becomes true. Amen? Otherwise, they're just a liar. And so it says on a colt, the foal of a donkey. A little donkey at that. So we fast forward. Y'all can see where this is going, okay? But this is before Christ. And then the next one comes up. And this is... John talking in John 12, verses 12 through 15, says the next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So he's about to end his life. He's coming to Jerusalem. How do you think Jesus is going to come if y'all are smart people? Anybody grow up in Sunday school? What was he riding on? It wasn't random. Yeah. So they took branches of palm trees. That was an allusion to the Old Testament too. I shouldn't say allusion. Pointing back. And went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. The king of Israel is going to be our king too. Verse 14, and Jesus found a young donkey. He says young. It also said young in Zechariah. said a, a colt, a foal of a donkey, a young one, and sat on it just as it is what? It's not random. When they say just as it is written, listen, scholars do this a long time. They figure out how much of the New Testament is Old Testament because it's important. Jesus himself quoted Isaiah. He quoted almost all the prophets. It's not random. It's not random. It's a real event. More so, we have as much evidence that Christ died on a cross as we do that George Washington lived. It's not random. And here's the deal. We're filling our minds right now, but in a minute, we're going to get to what this means for our life. And so the last one, this is it. This is Isaiah 53. It says, fear not, daughter of Zion. Sorry, that's not it. Isaiah 53. And they made his grave. This is Isaiah. This is the famous chapter for his sins. Uh, I'll, I'll be uh, beaten, etc. The famous Isaiah 53 chapter that's right in the middle of the Bible. Verse 9, this is specific though. And they made his grave, talking about the grave to come of the one who would bear our sins with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. So two things they say there. Say number one, that he had done no wrong. Listen, of all the Romans' laws, Jesus broke none of them. And number two, is they say that he'll be laid with a rich man in his death. That's another way of saying he'll be put in a rich man's tomb. Okay, He'll be laid with the rich man. And so later on, we get to Matthew chapter 27, verses 57 through 60. And this is where they said they put him. This is another random thing. Okay? Jesus had no tomb. He didn't, he didn't do like we can do nowadays and go to the, the, the funeral home and go ahead and get him a place to go. But a random guy who saw Jesus, I think, kind of had some remorse for him and how he was treated, grabbed him up and said, when it was evening, this is John, or Matthew telling the story, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. So one of the believers had remorse on what was happening and said, I want to do away with his body properly. There's a couple things to do away with somebody's body properly then. Number one, you need to put him in a tomb. Number two, you need to put cloths around him. And number three, I'm trying to remember what it was, and I can't, but it doesn't have a big deal, okay? Number 50, so verse 58. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered for it to be given to him. Verse 59. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. 
And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Now this Joseph is not what would have been Jesus' dad. We know Jesus was born by the Spirit and the Virgin Mary. And this is not that Jesus. This is a random disciple of Jesus who was rich. Church tradition says that Joseph was probably the richest follower that Jesus had at the time. So the richest of his disciples is the one that grabs him and puts him in the tomb. And the other one, I remember, the third thing that makes somebody that you need to do when somebody dies is you leave them in the tomb for at least three days because that proved that they were actually dead. Okay? They didn't have heart machines back then. They thought they were dead, so they put them in there. And you can understand why it was three days, right? Because after three days, Jesus rose again. Now, I say all that. Listen, my goal in doing all that is not so you say, wow, that was good. That sounded smart. It's because I think we sometimes get beside ourselves and we think that this day is just kind of random. And my goal is that we would not be like the Corinthians. And if we are, we would be reminded that this is not random. This happened according to the scriptures, right? And you say, well, Dustin, is the Bible reliable? Yes, you can do your work on it. But even if you don't find something reliable, one thing in it, it still points to Christ and his resurrection. And you have to deal with that. The second thing, which is good too, okay, as to why we believe that he, he, he points to, is that we believe because of his appearance to real people. So not only were their prophecies pointing to Christ, but we believe because of his appearance to real people. These aren't people that were random or made up. The Apostle Peter and John and Luke and Matthew and Mark, these aren't people that we think, well, that was a good person to talk about Jesus and leave a legacy behind. These are people that really walk the earth that we are still digging up things about and finding more out about them. But read verse 2 with me. It says, And by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. We're not believing in vain. But verse 5 tells us why we don't believe in vain for the second reason. And it's that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared. Remember, our point is that he appeared. I, I didn't pull this randomly. It's that he appeared. He appeared. It's over and over what Paul is pointing back to. He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then who does he throw in there? He's not done saying he appeared. A lot of times when we uh, talk about through these passages and figure out what we want our points to be, we see what Paul's themes are. He's saying appeared four or five times here. Verse 7, then he appeared to James. Why is James important? Because if anybody was going to say Jesus was a fake, it's probably his brother. Yeah? I mean, think about it. Like the one that grew up with him and knew him when he was young, the one that would probably be like, I don't think so. He says James too because he knew him the best. He was his brother, but he still believed. Verse 8, and then last of all, as to one untimely born, he called an apostle, appeared, or sorry, appeared also to me, which was Paul. All these people weren't random. They, they weren't trying to think of something, but he's saying we're not believing in vain because these people were real people that he appeared to, and then they went on to tell the story about it. That's much of the reason we believe everything in history is because people have confirmed it and foretold it down the line. And that's the same way for us. We just have it bottled up in a book rather than just oral tradition. But it got me thinking, what does it mean to believe in vain? 
It would mean that these people believe, the, the apostles, and, and I think this applies to us, you'll see this in a second, but for us not to believe in vain, it means that we don't believe something and then not act on it, okay? So none of these apostles believed and then didn't act on it. Every one of them believed, and then you, the closer you got to them, the more you studied their life, the more you realized this is real. They really actually believe this happened. It got me thinking when I was growing up, okay, I grew up on a farm. Uh, I wouldn't use the word redneck, maybe country, okay? Uh, um, but grew up on a farm, and we liked to hunt, okay? And um, I remember I was probably about five, because I remember my older brother being nine, and uh, we, we were for Christmas asking for guns, okay? We wanted guns. We wanted to have our own gun that we could take hunting with our parents, okay? And um, I remember we woke up a Christmas morning and we walked into the living room and in front of our stuff, there were two guns laid out, okay? Dylan, at this point, my younger brother was one, so he didn't count, okay? But there's two guns for, <laughs> he, he counted, but not really, okay? Um, so uh, I always wonder, like, anyway, I can't, I got, I only got 15 minutes, so. There's two guns laid out. And from as far as I am away, I look at my older brother and I, and we're like, yes, you know, I mean, fire. Oh, this is it. This is what we wanted, what we asked for. And goodness gracious, we got it, you know. And um, so we start walking over, and I start walking over a little closer, and I realize that my gun is a little smaller than my brother's. I'm like, this is weird. This is like this long, and mine's like this long. That ain't good, you know. And then I got even closer to it, and I'm like, it's kind of thin. You know, his is like this big. It was a shotgun, and mine's even smaller. I'm like, that's weird. Then I pick it up and grab it, and if you've ever held, like, shotguns before, they're a little cold, you know, where, they're, where the steel is, and I picked it up, and it's not cold. It's plastic. <laughs> <laughs> I ain't got no shotgun, Dustin. <laughs> Dustin had a BB gun, okay? And I was sad because I wanted the real thing, right? Is it not true, though, that we want the real thing. Yes, like we want something genuine. And, and when we see something that we desire to see and it's not genuine, it's not real, we get sad. And I think that's the way it is for Christ followers. Yes, most people's bad church experiences and why they're hesitant with church is because maybe the church wasn't forthcoming or maybe they had a bad experience with people. But what we have to do at some point is we have to believe in God's church, but we also have to look at the person of Christ and know that nobody's perfect. So when that happens, we point them to Christ, the only one who was perfect, okay? But what it should do is cause all of us to want to live a genuine Christ-following life. Double standards turn people away from Christ more than anything. You know how you can avoid the double standard? There's two ways. Number one, fight for holiness. Don't let the double standard be true, Right? Fight for obedience. It's not easy. Often obedience comes with a cost, but that's okay. It's worth it. You're living for the Lord. And number two, don't claim that you're perfect. If you don't claim that you're perfect, then your life can be genuine. That's why I even say that often. I share struggles. I share what my wife and I go through. I share lots of things. Not because I don't want you to think a pastor actually cares about the Lord and lives for the Lord and loves the Lord. I do all those things, and we're pursuing holiness as a family. But it's that if you see me as perfect, then you set your standard as perfect, and the reality is none of us are perfect. That's the exact reason Jesus had to go to the cross. His blood would have been wasted if we could find our salvation on our own. And so he went because he knew that we couldn't. And so what I want to say now is, is that all the people that he's talking about, they appeared to, 
They all didn't live random lives. The majority of them were willing to give up their life unto the point of death for something they believed to be true. Now, here's the thing you need to know about people who believe something to be true. You may believe something a little bit. Like maybe UGA is going to win the national championship next year. Anybody be fired up? Yeah? If you believe that, would you put your life down for it? Absolutely not. You've been heartbroken the past 40 years. <laughs> right? You don't think it's happening really. You ain't guaranteed. But if you really believe something to be true, you would lay your life down for it. And almost all of the 500 that were still alive now got persecuted somehow, and many of which got persecuted unto the point of death. Listen, I don't know about you guys, but if I'm an apostle, this guy walks around saying he's the Lamb of God, he's going to die for my sins, and I'm going to follow him, and then he goes on the cross and dies, I'm not too sure of what that guy said. He died like I'm going to do, like you were going to do. But if he then appeared to me three days later and said, I'm God, and go on to teach the things that he taught to them after he appeared, after resurrecting from the dead, there's something a little more to believe about this guy, yeah? And so if the resurrection is true, then no doubt their lives are going to be lived different, number one, but no doubt, number two, they're probably going to believe it unto death. And most of them did. Let me give you just the three that we quoted, okay? We had the three Old Testament prophecies. I could have gone down the list and found only people that died, but I said, let's find the three people that we just quoted that wrote about Jesus and quoted the Old Testament. Here's what happened to them. Luke. Tradition is Luke's the only one that died of old age. Man, the majority of us in here as Christ followers will get to die from old age or, or die from any random event, not for our faith. And we should be thankful for that, church. Amen? But it wasn't without being persecuted. They said they had multiple attempts to try to kill Luke. The Lord saved him for some reason. What did that mean for Luke? Fruitful labor. It meant that if he had another day, he was going to keep living. John? John ended up dying old in his age, not as old as most of the apostles. But John later died. But tradition has it, history has it, that John once got dipped in a boiling pot of oil and came out and lived and was unharmed. I don't know about you, I'm not going in a burning pot of oil for something I don't really believe. You kind of want to smile because it sounds crazy. Yeah, it's okay. But it forces for us to think about the resurrection and if it's really true or not. The third one we quoted was Matthew. Matthew had left and gone to Ethiopia, which would have been not the exact country of Ethiopia and Africa now, but to that region. In that time, a lot of that region was considered Ethiopia. Matthew went down there, had started a couple churches, and at the altar of one of his own churches, he was speared to the ground and killed by the king of Ethiopia. You don't go spread a gospel you don't really believe that you're not willing to lay your life down for. The number of people that were willing to say, I saw the rector at resurrected Christ and give their life up for it is a personal eyewitness account for as we don't believe in vain today. Listen, our belief is not in vain. It's, you don't believe because your heart pounds a little bit when the kick drum hits. You don't believe because the pastor gets excited and says something great and the blessing's coming if you believe in God, okay? Like, that's not what we're here for. We believe because we study. Our belief is not in vain, you guys. Our belief is because 
Jesus really lived a perfect, sinless life. He really went to the cross to bear the death that we should die. And number three, he really did resurrect, proving that he was God and that his sacrifice was acceptable to God. And if all of that's true, if the scriptures were true pointing to it and people really did that, then it leaves us at a crossroads like we started at the beginning of this passage, right? And this is not random. This is not Dustin coming up with a good idea of how to defend the resurrection. This is exactly how Paul defended it. He defended it by the scriptures and he defended it by people that Jesus appeared to. So now the summary of my message. Let me give you two things that this means for our life. Number one, it means the work is finished. And there's nothing better. Dustin, what do you mean by work? Not the toil that you'll do tomorrow morning because Easter's over and you have to go to work to provide for your family. But the work to find hope in life. The work to find purpose in life. The work to figure out why you're here. And then when you figure out why you're here and you realize there's the God of the universe who created you, the work to have a relationship with him and be reconciled to your creator has been done, right? And it was done through the bridge of the cross and what Christ accomplished for us. The work is finished, meaning that your salvation and your eternity spent with God was bought at a price. Jesus found you valuable enough and God's glory worthy enough as a motive to purchase and redeem a people to worship God forever. And that's what we'll get to do. You know, I got to thinking, I don't share my testimony a lot, but I think sometimes we forget how remarkable it is that anybody gets saved. Yeah. You know, like we see testimony videos of somebody who's in a gang or their life was just falling out and it was terrible and etc. And, you know, it is a miracle they're saved. But it's a miracle that even anybody is saved. Nobody's born out of their womb saying, I want to live my life for Jesus Christ. We're born out of our womb thinking, I want to live for me. I want to be at the center of my life. And that's all of us in here. That was me. I was prideful, lustful, living for myself. But then God saved me. And it wasn't a random thing. I I was looking for purpose, and I started realizing my sin and what Christ did for it. The other thing it means when the work is finished is it means that pain is temporary. It means that there's going to be hard times on earth, but if you're in Christ in here, your pain is temporary. There's false things that go around, and I hate to mention this on Resurrection Sunday, but it's true. Jesus' blood and resurrection did not guarantee our healing on earth. It didn't. You may get healed the next time, and if somebody teaches you that you don't get healed because you don't have enough faith, that's false. What Jesus' death and resurrection guaranteed for us is that one day we will be healed and have a glorious body and everything will be great, but that may very well not and will most likely not, actually 100% not be on this side of heaven. If cancer doesn't get us crossroads, having to think to ourselves, what am I doing with the resurrection? Death is coming. And it leaves us with our shame and our sin and our life to think about. But brothers and sisters, is that not while we're here celebrating the death and resurrection of Christ? The resurrection puts us at a crossroads with our life and makes us think about it. This week, I got to help do the funeral and we buried my great-grandmother. I don't share that because it's random. It just happened in the middle of Easter and it fit as a good analogy. She wasn't overly concerned about getting healed this last time. She was 95. She taught Sunday school for 75 years. 
I think she felt like she gave herself up because she was better off going to be with Christ than her work had been done here, right? At some point, we have to see, you guys, our biggest issue not is what's going on in our life tomorrow, but are we in a relationship with our Creator? And the only way that can happen is through the cross of Jesus Christ, and then we have eternal life and we put faith in Him, meaning that one day death is not going to have the final say in our life, but we're going to resurrect with Christ and get to worship the one that died for us forever. And that's the good news of the work being finished. Number two is it gives us true purpose. It means that no longer we have to wonder why we're here. Paul goes on to say in verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. That's what he means by the work is finished. But what does he say after that? God doesn't save us for us, you guys. We don't celebrate Easter so that you and I can high five. We can do that in heaven when the work's over. We have a bigger purpose now. It's not for us to have a holy huddle and judge the outside world for their sins. Of course, if they don't know Christ, they're going to act like they don't know Christ. But there's work left for us to do. And it's a big P purpose, not a little P purpose. It's big W work, work left to go and share the gospel with people that Jesus paid his blood for, for us to share the gospel with them so that they can come to know of the resurrection and they can find their hope and they can find their purpose in Christ so that we will then be celebrating with them in heaven one day too. We find our big P purpose in what Christ did for us. This week, and I want to I end with this, I'm going to do it quickly. This week, uh, a college girl in our uh, college ministry asked, she, she wanted to know about starting the church. We, if you're here, we only started the church about um, uh, not even quite a year and a half ago. And they said, one of the questions was, and it was directed right at me, and I, you know, at least when you're being interviewed, you got to play the humble card. Fair enough. Like, you know what I mean? Like, if they interview the guy after the national championship, like, if they start pounding their chest then, then it's like, okay, you're already being interviewed, you know, at least play the humble card then. And she said, what are you most proud of? And I thought for a second, like, I don't know. How do I answer that? I got to thinking, Paul talks about in Galatians, he says, I was coming up through the ranks faster than anyone. He says, I came from the tribe of Benjamin, which was the tribe of tribes from the Old Testament. It was the good one. I was circumcised on the seventh day. He goes on through this list, okay? For modern day, he was a five-star and every SEC school wanted him. Yeah? But then Paul met the grace of God and got saved. And you know what he said after that, the verse we quote? I counted all his loss if I can live to know my Savior, Jesus Christ. Yeah? And so what I thought of that moment was I shared that with the girl. And then I said, you know, what happens is, is now we have to say, I want to live my life for something bigger than just me. How do we do that? How do we find our purpose? We, we look for our purpose. We got to find meaning in life. We find purpose in life when we look to the one who designed life, which is our creator. The one that put us here, the one that is it talked about in Genesis 1-1 when it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, the God that's timeless, the God that's sovereign, that knows everything. That's the one who created us. That's the one that was there and Jesus was with and wrapped in flesh and went to the cross and then was buried and resurrected for us. And so what it causes us to do is to find our biggest purpose not in bragging on ourselves, and even bragging in ourselves and bragging that we're the saved ones. We'll get to worship Jesus forever in heaven. But we find purpose, a bigger purpose, meaning that purpose more than just work tomorrow, purpose that now your life is to be lived making disciples of Jesus Christ, 
right? Paul said, for to live is Christ, to die is gain. If we're going to live, we live for Christ, and then when we die, we get gain. When he came to the place of death and talking about death, he said, if I keep on living, it's going to mean fruitful labor for me. The resurrection means that we find life in Christ, but it also redefines our purpose and means that now we have a purpose to live, meaning we as the church have something still left to accomplish until every person around us is worshiping the name of Jesus for what he did on the cross and for resurrecting for you and I. Amen? Listen, if there's not a better reason to celebrate than to think that the God of the universe came down and died a death that we couldn't earn ourselves to die and then resurrected, proving that he was God and that the sacrifice that he made was true and good, then we really don't have anything. It's what it hinges on, and it's true. And that's why we're here. That's why we gather every Sunday, is to celebrate the one who paid his life for us and resurrected for us. Amen? Let's bow our heads and then we'll sing together. I want to quickly give a salvation call. Um, that's what it is, okay? Um, not an altar call. We're not going to ask you to come up, but Isaiah says that the day of day for salvation can be any day, and um, that can be today. Maybe you came and you're looking for purpose and you've never come to a crossroads of who Christ is. We don't want you to make this decision based on emotion. We don't want you to make this decision because there's noise in the background or uh, you're excited or your heart beating really fast. We want you to make this decision because you believe that Christ really died the death that you deserved and resurrected from the grave showing that he was God. And he said, if you put your faith in that, Romans 10, 9 says, you will be saved. It's not an emotional plea. It's a conscious decision to say, I want to follow Christ because he's my savior. And if that's you, I'm going to ask you to put your hand up now. And this isn't, uh, once again, a random plea. This is because we have a couple people in here that want to get you and take you back and be able to talk with you through it. We don't want you to make the decision and go home without any steps or direction. And so if you're here and you want to do that, would you slip your hand up in this moment? I'm going to assume then that uh, we're believers in here, which is good. That's what the church is for. Um, we design these services for believers. The, the work for us to equip the saints and do the work is out there. And so what that means is that this morning we should sing and worship God for what he's done for us. We have nothing greater to be grateful for than our sin being paid for that eternally separated us from God and Jesus paying it and giving us eternal life with God. Amen. Let me pray quickly and we'll stand up and sing and worship. Father, we love you. We're thankful for the cross. And we're thankful for your resurrection. And God, I pray this morning as we think through this, this causes us to maybe reflect even more. God, we're overly grateful for what you did for us. None of us could earn it. And God, we're thankful God, that you wanted to purchase and redeem us. And God, that our hope doesn't end here on earth, but our hope goes on forever because of you resurrecting from the dead and giving us eternal life. God, help us see the grace that you've given us. And God, help us celebrate it more than we ever have. We love you and we pray these things in Christ's name. Everybody says, amen. You guys stand and let's sing together.